So welcome this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, As we begin today, we find ourselves halfway in the Gospel of Mark. In the very first verse, Mark introduced Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And from that point forward, Mark has moved quickly. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's is the shortest and also the most fast-paced. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness. He has preached, called disciples, and taught parables. He's overcome relentless opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. He's miraculously healed the sick, cleansed lepers, cast out demons, calmed a storm, raised the dead, walked on water, and fed hungry crowds. He's performed all of these works all over the map in front of both Jews and Gentiles. So even if nothing else happened in this story, after just the first half of Mark's gospel, Jesus has already had an impact that no one in his day and age would have forgotten. But today we see a major shift in the story. Today, Jesus begins to say things that he's never said before. Curious, worrisome, ominous things. He'll speak plainly rather than through veiled parables. He talks openly about the path of suffering, rejection, and death that he's about to take. And he calls his disciples to join him on that path. This is the part of the gospel where the disciples, both then and now, are called to a radical way of following Jesus that, if we're being totally honest, may not sound all that appealing. But it all starts with a seemingly simple story about Jesus restoring a blind man's sight. And we find that story in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. So feel free to mark, open up to Mark 8, 22. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for the privilege and the joy and the honor of coming here and singing and taking communion and praying and opening up your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would make us receptive to what you have to say to us. Thank you that we have your word, that we don't have to guess or speculate or theorize or imagine who you are, but rather you've offered yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to us. You've come down to our level and made yourself understandable to us. And even though we can't fully understand you, your majesty and your glory are just beyond our full comprehension. Thank you for your word that we can understand you enough. We can understand you enough to know you and love you and recognize you as God. And so, Father, thank you for this gracious act of revealing yourself to us in your word. And thank you that it's in this word that we read about Christ, the one who has redeemed us. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is living within us. And thank you for the reward that we have to look forward to, purchased for us by Christ. Again, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to read this word this morning. 
in this place. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So other than a few interesting little quirks, this seems like just another story of Jesus healing an illness, disease, or disability, like so many other stories in the Gospels. Now, the quirks that set this story apart include Jesus leading the man out of the village. That little gross part about rubbing his eyes with spit, the CDC would not like that. And the fact that it apparently took more than one try for the man's vision to be fully restored. But by the time it's all over, the man can see. The process of this healing may look different than most of the others, but the end result is the same. The man can see now. End of story. But remember this. The man went from being totally blind to half blind, half seeing, to fully seeing. Remember those three categories. We'll come back to them later in the sermon. Totally blind, half blind, half seeing, and then fully seeing. Picking up in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus and the disciples go on about their way. And Jesus asks the question, who do the people, the crowds, the masses, those who have seen and heard so much about Jesus, who do all these people say that he is? What do Jesus's polling numbers look like? What's the public opinion about Jesus at this point in the story? Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say he's one of the prophets. We saw the exact same thing back in Mark chapter 6, after the wicked ruler Herod beheaded John the Baptist. Some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. Others thought he was Elijah. Others thought he was like one of the prophets of old. But then Jesus turns to his disciples fixes his eyes on them and asks the same question. Who do you say that I am? Not the rumors, not the word on the street, not the speculations. Who do you say that I am? Now, these disciples, particularly Jesus's 12 apostles, have been with him from the very beginning of his ministry. 
They've had a front row seat for the miracles. They've heard explanations of Jesus's parables that nobody else got. They've experienced some of Jesus's power themselves when he sent them out in teams of two and they did their own healings. So after all of that, who do these disciples say Jesus is? Well, Peter, as he tends to do, whether for better or for worse, speaks up on behalf of the group. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. At its root, a Messiah was someone anointed by God, someone set apart for a specific God-ordained task. But the Messiah, the Christ, well, that person had a big job ahead of them. That person would reestablish King David's throne, retake Jerusalem for the Jews, restore God's glorious temple, recover Israel's worldly power and wealth, and defeat their enemies once and for all. And Peter apparently thinks that Jesus is that guy. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And according to Jesus, Peter's use of that word, Christ, is correct. In Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus calls Peter blessed for making this good confession. He adds that God the Father in heaven led Peter to this conclusion. So we're off to a great start in this passage. We haven't heard a peep from those pesky, up-to-no-good religious leaders. We've seen yet another successful healing. And even the normally dim-witted disciples have had a major breakthrough in their understanding of who Jesus is. It's a banner day in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. But then Jesus keeps talking. And the tone of the passage takes a sudden and dark turn. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Suffer. Rejected. Killed. The disciples are so horrified by these words that the other event that Jesus predicts, that after three days he will rise again, doesn't even seem to register in their minds. They just pass right over it. So Peter, once again, acting on behalf of the whole group of disciples, physically pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. The word for rebuke can also be translated reprimand. In short, for just a moment, Peter puts himself in the position of master and Jesus in the position of student. Peter scolds Jesus like a teacher slapping a child's wrist with a ruler. 
Peter and the disciples simply cannot fathom that these things, suffering, rejection, being killed, could possibly befall Jesus. Again, going back to Matthew's account of this story, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, over my dead body will you suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Now, surely part of the reason that Peter and the disciples were so disturbed by these words was that they simply loved Jesus. He's their master, their teacher, their friend. They've left everything behind to follow him. How can it possibly all end like this? But perhaps most of all, Peter and the disciples cannot imagine that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, be rejected, and be killed at the hands of their own religious leaders. That's not exactly what Peter expected when he made that good confession that Jesus is the Christ. You can imagine Peter looking at Jesus and saying, no, 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 Jesus, you've got it all backwards. Our enemies are the ones who will suffer and be rejected and be killed. Not you. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You just said so. But Jesus is steadfast. He will have none of Peter's pushback. In verse 31, Jesus doesn't just say that these things will happen. He says that they must happen. So Jesus looks at Peter, looks at the disciples, makes eye contact and says, get behind me, Satan. The only other person Jesus ever talks like that to is Satan. So after what appeared to be a wonderful breakthrough in verse 29, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Once again, Peter and the disciples are missing the point. In the words of theologian Ron Burgundy, well, that escalated quickly. We went from a relatively standard healing of a blind man to Peter's good confession to Jesus predicting his own suffering, rejection, and execution, followed by Jesus calling the disciples Satan. So after this promising start in the passage, Jesus and the disciples are clearly not on the same page. So in our last few verses, Jesus takes the disciples and corrects them on their misconceptions of who he is, He paints a very clear picture of what he came to do, what he must do, and the path that they too are called to follow. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So apparently Jesus is not the Christ, not the Messiah that Peter and the disciples expected. Jesus' path to glory and victory will be paved with self-denial, even to the point of crucifixion. His path to glory and the path his followers are called to take as well will be marked by setting your mind on the things of God instead of the things of man, losing your life in order to save it, and forfeiting the world in order to keep your soul. And if you find this sort of Christ inadequate, if you find this path of discipleship to be a little bit too distasteful for you, if you'd prefer to not be associated with someone or something so weak, so shameful, then you can reject him. But in eternity, he will reject you. As Jesus says these things, you can imagine him looking at his disciples with laser-like focus. But in a very real sense, he's also looking at you. And he's also looking at me. Now the story that began our sermon was much more tame than the last few verses that we've read. Remember that blind man in Bethsaida? The guy who Jesus led out of the village, rubbed spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and healed That guy who went from totally blind to half blind, half seeing, and then to perfect vision. Now at first, that story may have seemed like a relatively inconsequential, run-of-the-mill account about Jesus' power to heal. One of many such stories in the Gospels. But when you put verses 22 through 26 together with the verses following it, the ones we just read you see that there's a lot more going on in that healing than first meets the eye. So let's think about those three categories of sight that we just talked about. Who are the totally blind in verses 27 through 38? The totally blind are those who think that Jesus is just another John the Baptist, just another Elijah, just another prophet of old. They recognize that Jesus may be important, but that's pretty much it. But in reducing Jesus in that way, those people completely fail to see who Jesus really is. They're blind. In our day and age, most people will recognize that Jesus is an incredibly important historical figure. You may see him as an outstanding moral example an impressive miracle worker, a wise teacher, an inspiring advocate for the poor and the downtrodden. But if that's all you think Jesus is, you are just as blind as that man in Bethsaida. Now, who are the half-blind, half-seeing in verses 27 through 38? Well, the half-blind, half-seeing are those like Peter and the disciples. They get the title right, when they call Jesus the Christ, but they're wrong about what the Christ will really do. The suffering, rejection, being killed, 
that wasn't a bug in Jesus's mission. Those things were not hiccups along the way. They were not obstacles. Those are things that must happen for Jesus to fulfill the mission that his father gave him. They had to happen. Now, the disciples didn't create their false expectations of the Messiah out of thin air. They came to those conclusions from reading the Old Testament in a certain way. But when Jesus upended those assumptions, the disciples tried to correct Jesus's vision rather than letting Jesus correct theirs. You know, it's very easy for us to call Jesus by all the right titles. Lord, Christ, Savior, Messiah, King, Son of God. But when the rubber meets the road of following him, it's very tempting to try to set our own terms on what discipleship looks like. It's tempting to try and have our cake and eat it too by calling him the Christ while also setting our minds on the things of man rather than on the things of God. It's great if you know all the right titles for Jesus. So did Peter at this point in the story. But if you refuse to submit to him and follow him, even when he leads you down a path of suffering, rejection, and self-denial that could lead you to the foot of a cross, then you aren't truly, fully seeing him. And finally, category number three, who are the fully seeing in verses 27 through 38? Well, it's those who understand who Jesus really is. Not just a recycled version of John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, but the Christ It's those who understand that Jesus the Christ's mission led straight to a cross, ended in a resurrection, and are prepared to follow him down that same path themselves. And when Jesus returns in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels, those who have fully seen him for who he really is and followed him will not be let down. May we not be ashamed of him lest he be ashamed of us. So who do you say he is? Which category do you fall into? Are you totally blind? Do you refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is? The Christ. You may think he's a unique man, or an important man, but in your eyes he's still just a man. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul describes those who have not submitted to and followed Christ as blind. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But the good news is that there is hope for those who are currently blind. Because after all, those of us who believe in Jesus right now were once blind too. A few verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, if God can create light out of nothing, 
the sun, the moon, the stars. And he can help you see who Christ is. Or maybe you're in category number two. You're half blind, half seeing. You know enough to call Jesus by the right titles. But the truth is that you're still holding on to your plans, your priorities, your desires, your dreams, and your goals. And you might even rebuke, reject, or ignore Jesus every time his words don't fit your agenda. Well, I would challenge you to see him for who he really, truly, fully is. Not who you'd like him to be. Get behind him and follow him, no matter where he leads you. Or maybe you're in category number three. You are fully seen. You not only know Jesus' titles, you have faith in his death and resurrection, and you are following him now. Well, if that's you, praise God. The day Christ returns will not be a day of judgment or terror for you. It will be a day of joy. You have eternal life to look forward to. But don't forget that you see by God's grace. Not because you're better or smarter or wiser or more humble than anybody else. As Jesus told Peter after that good confession in Matthew sixteen seventeen, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter didn't come to know Jesus as the Christ by his own power. He came to confess Jesus as the Christ by God's grace. And the same is true of us. So we take up our crosses and follow Jesus, knowing that he took up his cross to the point of dying on it for our sins. And we too know that one day we will be raised when he returns, because after three days he was raised. In the meantime, while we wait, we set our minds on the things of God, knowing that they are far more valuable than the things of this world. We deny ourselves, knowing that Jesus will not deny us. We lose our lives for his sake, knowing that he has saved them. And we forfeit the world, knowing that he will restore our souls. So who do we say Jesus is? We say he's the Christ. And by God's grace, we follow him all the way to the cross, with our eyes wide open, seeing him for who he really, truly, fully is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together to read your word. Father, I ask you to give us vision. Give us a good sight. Those of us who are blind in this room, who do not understand who Jesus is at all, I pray that you would open those eyes by your grace, that your word and your spirit would work in the hearts and minds of those people, and that eyes would be opened to who you are, to what you've done, and just how desperately we need you in this life and in the next. And I pray that you would give us clearer vision if we're half blind, half seeing. If we grew up in church, if we've been to the Sunday school classes, we've attended the Bible studies, 
And we know all the right titles, we know all the right things, we know all the right doctrines, and yet for some reason we just aren't quite there in following him. I pray that you would fully give us good sight, that we can see Christ in all his beauty, all his power, all his majesty, all his glory, and respond appropriately by following him. And Father, for those of us who do see your son, Jesus Christ, for who he really is, the Christ, the Messiah, who suffered and rejected and was killed and after three days rose and one day will return. For those of us who know that and see that, I pray that you would help us continue following him. Sustain us and preserve us until the day Christ returns. And keep us humble. Remind us that we didn't come to this faith, we didn't come to this salvation, we didn't come to this sight through our own works, because we're better or smarter or wiser or know the Bible better than other people. But we came to this point of faith and sight by your grace. So, Father, help us be grateful and help us be humble in response. And, Father, I pray that you'd watch over us as we close our service, as we begin to sing here in a few minutes. Father, I pray that this time in your word, this time together, as a family of Christ, has been beneficial to us, but more importantly, that it's been honoring to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.